I am speaking today to Professor Stephen Miller of Harvard University, where he directs the International Security Program at the John F. Kennedy School of Government and is also the editor-in-chief of the journal International Security. And I'm Shumit Ganguly, the director of the Center on American and Global Security here at Indiana University. And today's conversation is about the recently concluded Iran nuclear deal. And I am going to be raising a series of questions with Professor Miller in the course of this conversation. And at the very outset, I want to thank you for coming to Bloomington. It's a delight uh, to host you over here. And given your myriad other commitments, uh, we are especially pleased uh, that you could uh, come to campus. And so I'll plunge in fairly directly into the substance of the conversation. And at the very outset, what I'd like to ask you is, in your view, what are the principal criticisms uh, that have been leveled against this agreement? Well, I think that, broadly speaking, uh, there is a line of thought that basically says we gave up too much and got too little. And by giving up too much, I mean there's a, uh, there will be substantial sanctions relief for Iran if this deal is consummated. Uh, that will lead to a more prosperous Iran with a fuller a bank account of resources that, uh, in the eyes of many critics, will enable Iran to better or more easily fund uh, their nefarious activities around uh, the Middle East. In terms of uh, getting too little, uh, well, the American position from the beginning of the nuclear crisis in 2002 uh, until not long before this recent negotiation was basically that zero centrifuges was the only acceptable outcome. Uh, we did not achieve that objective. Iran will retain a small but substantial uh, infrastructure of uh, centrifuges, 5,000 centrifuges allowed by the deal. And in addition, obviously, uh, whatever constraints we achieved, it would be ideal to have them endure for as long as possible. And the most important restrictions on Iran's capabilities begin to ease uh, after 10 years and are fully eliminated after 15. And a lot of critics will say that's just too little time to uh, have forsaken the laboriously constructed sanctions regime. I think there's also underlying some of the views of the critics a, uh, a more fundamental concern, and that really is that what we find especially objectionable is not simply Iran's nuclear activities, but the regime itself and its international behavior. And the hope of many was really to foment regime change. Uh, and the the principal vehicle we had for fomenting regime change was sanctions producing economic distress, hopefully producing domestic dissatisfaction, hopefully undermining the regime. And if you have that logic in place, then easing the sanctions is a disaster uh, because what it does is it eliminates any possibility of putting enough pressure on Iran to cause domestic change. So I think those are the two main lines of critique uh, of, of the deal. What about uh, uh, this 15-year uh, figure? 
Uh, a number of critics have seized upon that. Do you have any sense of why this particular time span was arrived at? Let me come at uh, that in a sort of indirect way. Uh, for a very long time, the United States sought uh, to achieve what I would call a coerced outcome. That is to say, we were treating diplomacy as an opportunity for Iran to capitulate gracefully. The mechanism for forcing this capitulation would be pressure from our side, particularly via the sanctions. And in a coerced outcome, you can get a 100 to 0 kind of uh, result, or if not 100 to 0, you know, 98 to 2 or something. But in the latest wave of negotiations, we were actually in a genuine bargaining situation. And in a genuine bargaining situation, you can only, you can only get if you give, and you can only get what the other side is prepared to offer. In conversations with, uh, uh, in Europe very recently with uh, Iranian uh, colleagues, uh, I was told that uh, Zarif entered the negotiations proposing three-year restrictions with a fallback of five to five years. And we, of course, wanted, uh, that is the American side, uh, wanted as long as possible, indefinite if we could achieve it, uh, but 20 years is better than 15 and 25 years is better than 20. But there comes a point where you'd have to decide uh, whether what the other side is prepared to offer is acceptable or whether you're prepared to walk away from the deal. So I think the 15-year number came out of a triangulation between our preferences and Iran's willingness to accept uh, restrictions. Uh, you know, in international politics, 15 years is a very long time. It is indeed. It is indeed. It's hardly trivial. There is also some criticism of the very, uh, of, well, what the critics would argue is a very long duration of warning to be given to Iran in the event of inspections. Uh, and uh, some critics have argued that within those uh, 24 days, I believe, uh, that Iran could very easily dismantle and remove all traces of some work that they might have been engaged in um, mm. in terms of uh, putting together components of, an, mm. of uh, a nuclear uh, weapons enterprise. I've heard contrary arguments saying that, no, it's not that easy to sort of dismantle components with such rapidity, and there will be traces left behind, particularly mm -hmm. of radioactivity, and consequently, right. um, you know, this fear is really chimerical. I was wondering if you could comment on that. Well, first of all, I think it's important to keep that issue uh, in proper context. So, Iran has a baseline safeguards agreement, which ensures that all of its declared nuclear facilities, that is, all the facilities we're aware of that handle nuclear material, will be regularly inspected. So that happens continuously. Uh, frequent uh, visits by the IAEA, lots of collection of data, lots of provision of information by Iran. In addition, the main cascade halls at uh, Natanz, at the main enrichment facility, are under continuous IAEA closed-circuit television surveillance. So Iran can do nothing in those halls, nothing to its installed centrifuges, 
uh, that won't be soon visible to the IAEA, to the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, and literally visible in the sense that it's recorded on, recorded on tape. Iran, as part of this deal, has agreed to accept something called the Additional Protocol, uh, which is an extra layer of safeguards, which is a voluntary uh, protocol that is intended to uh, increase the IAEA's ability to provide reassurance about the peaceful purposes associated with any nuclear program. Uh, it requires uh, states that accept it to provide more information earlier in the process about facilities. Uh, it also gives the IAEA additional powers of inspection, including some challenge inspections. Beyond this, as part of the joint comprehensive plan of action, the, that is to say the Iran deal, there is an elaborate challenge inspection provision. And it's only with respect to this narrow piece that there is a process that has to be undertaken, a process of adjudication. So Iran, like any other state, was unwilling to accept any time, anywhere inspections. This would be completely unacceptable to the United States. No state has ever accepted this under except under conditions of complete surrender uh, in a military conflict. So it was never a realistic prospect that Iran would accept that in, in the context of this arrangement. What was needed, however, was some sort of mechanism to address concerns that might arise if there was a concern about suspicious activity in some location other than those already inspected by the regular IAEA safeguards arrangements. So uh, the, the P5 plus 1 insisted that there be some sort of mechanism where they could investigate in the event that suspicions arose. Iran, on the other hand, insisted that this could not simply be a discretionary choice on the part of the P5 plus 1, that when they felt like it, they could go anywhere they wanted. And so there is an, an adjudicatory process uh, there will be a commission set up to provide this adjudication. And if a concern arises about activity in some location that's not already inspected, there will be a, a claim put forward that will then be addressed by the parties. Uh, it's basically uh, six against one. <laughs> so, But it does give Iran a chance to explain itself and so on. Uh, now, this can take as much as 24 days. And it can happen faster, but if it goes at its slowest pace, it can take 24 days. And so then there has been a concern that activities at a suspicious site could be cleaned up, removed, hidden, dismantled in that 24-day interval. Uh, and I think what one has to say is, first of all, if, if uh, this suspicious activity involved the handling of nuclear materials... It is very, very difficult just as a technical matter to clean up all the particles that might be detected by the IAEA. Uh, so there would be a very considerable risk of detection uh, even after 24 days and even after an effort to clean up because what you're really talking about is atomic-level particles, uh, and it's very difficult to ensure that you've removed every last trace. With respect to activities that don't involve nuclear materials, First of all, most of those are not prohibited activities. Secondly, that is to say they're not, they're not forbidden by the NPT or the safeguards arrangements or whatever. Secondly, if there are no, there's no nuclear materials, there's no traces to detect, 
Uh, you don't have to clean anything up if you're engaged in high explosives testing or something, but but not using nuclear material. Uh, you don't have to scramble around and clean anything up. And dismantlement, uh, if it happens, presumably we're watching, presumably we, we uh, that is to say, satellite or other intelligence means are the reason why we were aware of or concerned about suspicious activity in the first place. If you see the Iranians immediately uh, responding to a claim about a, a facility by removing stuff, knocking down buildings, moving earth around or whatever, this in itself would be a worrisome bit of evidence and would cause uh, Iran immediate problems. So I think in the end, uh, the challenge inspection mechanism addressed a P5 plus one concern in a way that gives us some traction in addressing suspicious activities at uninspected facilities while giving Iran some protection of its own sovereignty. And that's probably about as good as it's going to get. And I don't think we're running high risks in terms of uh, giving uh, Iran a window uh, for meaningful cheating. So that assuages really the concerns that some critics have raised. Uh, that, you know, in this 24-day window uh, that Iran, with <clears throat> sort of post-haste, might uh, r remove uh, and dismantle certain facilities and remove all traces of radioactive material. I mean, th this is a really tall order. And particularly mm -hmm. when you're talking about the surveillance and scrutiny that Iran will be under Correct. Uh, using national technical means and human intelligence, uh, one would imagine. Yes. Uh, you know, the, if you have the worst possible sort of view of Iran's behavior and intentions, so if you assume they are hell-bent on getting a nuclear weapon, and if you assume that they will cheat to the maximum possible extent they can get away with, and if you assume that they'll be looking to exploit any small opportunity to advance their uh, nuclear program, then you could have some sort of marginal worry that this 24-day period could provide Iran with a little bit of wiggle room that they could do something with. Uh, I don't think that anybody believes that they can make a nuclear weapon in that period. I don't believe that anybody thinks that they can make significant progress on their program in that period. By definition, if it's a challenge inspection, we're talking about facilities that are not the main facilities that handle nuclear material in Iran. So you're not talking about giving them 24 days to manufacture highly enriched uranium at Natanz. Natanz is fully safeguarded all the time, right? During the interim agreement that was put into place in November of 2013 to allow time for the negotiation of the comprehensive agreement, under the terms of the interim agreement, Iran's major nuclear facilities were inspected by the IAEA on a daily basis. This was unprecedented. I think the Iranians got relatively little credit for it, uh, but it does uh, provide a very substantial degree of assurance that those facilities are not being used for weapons purposes. Right? Now, uh, often the concern is about what's happening elsewhere, outside of the heavily safeguarded uh, facilities. And uh, as you know, under the rubric of possible military dimensions of Iran's program, there have been concerns about Iran's missile testing program. There have been concerns about various high explosives experiments that Iran is alleged to have undertaken, uh, some of which could have possible 
applications in a nuclear weapons context and so on. Uh, the problem is these are all dual-use activities, and therefore there are benign explanations for them as well as malign explanations. But the more fundamental point is there's nothing anywhere, no agreement, no treaty, no nothing anywhere on the planet that forbids high explosives testing. This is a violation of nothing other than our sensibilities. It causes worry uh, on the P5 plus one part because it could be part of a pattern of circumstantial evidence of interest in a weapons program. As for missiles, the world is awash in missiles. Uh, lots of states have missiles. The United States has a zillion missiles of all different varieties, right? There are very few limits anywhere uh, on the development of missiles. And the few that, that exist are mostly in the context of U.S.-Russian arms control and have to do with limits on numbers of long-range delivery systems. None of that applies or pertains to Iran, right? And then there are allegations that Iran is developing uh, a missile payload system, that is a nose cone for the missiles. It is hard to imagine what missile program doesn't develop a payload for the missiles. I mean, uh, this is a normal uh, process. Now, from the point of view of outsiders, uh, Iran's missile program is worrisome because in the West, missiles are regarded principally as a delivery system for weapons of mass destruction. Uh, and so uh, people understandably ask, why is Iran developing missiles if it doesn't have interest in weapons of mass destruction? And when you put the missile development program together with their enrichment activities that gives them a potential ability to produce weapons-grade material, uh, people say, Eureka, there's the explanation. You have a coherent uh, weapons program. The Iranians, of course, have their own narrative and their own explanations. And when you ask them about their missile program, they basically say, we're under serious threat from Israel. We have a terrible problem of deterring the Israelis because they are very war prone and they are not at all constrained by international law. Ideally, we would have an aircraft-based deterrent force uh, that would be sufficient that the Israelis would understand they could not attack us with impunity. However, it turns out to be the reality that between the American Air Force and the Israeli Air Force, the airspace in the upper Persian Gulf is totally dominated by them. They have the superior air forces, and it's extremely unlikely that our limited air capabilities would be able to pose a credible deterrent threat to the Israelis. And therefore, we need uh, missiles because missiles are much harder to stop and uh, we can put conventional warheads on them. And if is Israel strikes us, they will understand that they will be struck back. So that's their argument. It doesn't ring very persuasively in a Western ear because uh, ballistic missiles are a very expensive way to deliver conventional ordnance. But it's not completely implausible. I'm engaged in a conversation with Professor Stephen Miller from Harvard University, uh, where he directs uh, the International uh, Security Program at the John F. Kennedy School of Government and is also the Editor-in-Chief of International Security.
I'm Shumit Ganguly, the director of the Center on American and Global Security here at Indiana University, and I've been in a conversation with Professor Stephen Miller of Harvard University about the Iran and nuclear agreement, and we are going to turn now to another aspect of uh, the agreement. Um, in your view, what do you think are sort of the next key steps in the implementation of this agreement? Well, Iran has undertaken to implement a very significant uh, set of measures that are the required precursor to the actual lifting of sanctions. Above all, they have to dismantle uh, a large number of centrifuges. They had roughly 20,000 centrifuges. When the deal is implemented, they'll, they'll be down to uh, slightly more than 5,000. So uh, they have to remove three-fourths of their installed base of centrifuges. These are the devices that actually enrich the uranium to higher levels of enrichment that enable it to be used in reactor fuel if you have what's called low enriched uranium, and you go to much higher levels of enrichment, so-called highly enriched uranium, or HEU, then you have something that's usable in a bomb. Uh, Iran, of course, has always said that, that what they're interested in doing is producing reactor fuel, uh, which would be low enriched uranium, which does not, in fact, uh, raise any bomb implications. That material cannot be used to make, uh, to make a bomb. So I think that's uh, step one. And the Iranians are uh, moving forward very vigorously with that because, of course, they don't get the benefit of sanctions relief until they have uh, undertaken the first steps that are required uh, on their side. A very tricky part of the deal, though, will then come into play, which is the lifting of the sanctions. And this is complicated for a couple of reasons, at least. Uh, so what sanctions are in place against Iran? There are 18 U.S. executive orders dating from 1979 and scattered across the intervening years. There are 10 congressional acts of legislation which contain sanctions provisions uh, against Iran. There are six United Nations resolutions subjecting Iran to sanctions in direct relation to the nuclear crisis. And there are four EU uh, sanctions measures that were put in place to some extent under American pressure as part of this effort over the past few years to, to tighten the, the vice uh, against Iran. The deal that was achieved says explicitly that only the nuclear-related sanctions will be lifted. So that means the sanctions that were put in place because of Iranian human rights violations will remain in place. The sanctions that were put in place because of alleged Iranian support for terrorism, those sanctions will stay. Those sanctions that were put in place because of objectionable foreign policy behavior in the Middle East or undermining Israel or whatever, those will remain in place. So it will be a very interesting process to see how you lift some sanctions but leave others in place and what this does for Iran. I think in the case of the United States, the sanctions relief will be uh, not as extensive uh, because so many of our sanctions were, in fact, put in place for reasons other than the nuclear crisis. So the critical variable will really be the lifting of the UN sanctions, which have, of course, wider international applicability, and the EU sanctions, which were very significant because prior to the 
emergence of this crisis, the EU was the principal trading partner of Iran. And uh, that ceased to be true. They've been supplanted by China. But uh, I think Iran sees Europe as a much more likely target for a very significant increase in economic interaction uh, than the United States. But meanwhile, the critics uh, in the United States, particularly in Congress, who are violently opposed to this deal, talk in terms of putting some of the sanctions that are lifted back in place for other reasons. And the supreme leader in Iran has stated explicitly that if this happens, it will constitute a violation of the agreement and it will it will void uh, the arrangement. So I think there's some potential for trouble in proceeding down this sanctions relief path. In addition, I think there's a, an interesting question how long this new reality with Iran will have to evolve before large economic actors in the West feel comfortable putting big resources into Iran. Uh, it may be that the hoped for rapid upsurge in interaction that, that Iran clearly seeks uh, won't happen simply because of caution on the part of private sector actors in the West who may not fully be confident that this new new opening will remain open for very long. You wouldn't want to sink uh, huge sums of money into developing gas fields in, in Iran, for example, which could involve billions or tens of billions of dollars if you fear that there's going to be trouble ahead uh, in this relationship or that the deal is going to somehow fizzle out and you'll be back into the situation of being vulnerable to sanctions applied to your behavior. Yes, the issue of sanctions relief, of course, is very much on the minds of many. And uh, uh, in this context, uh, obviously, much will also depend on the outcome of the American presidential election. At least some candidates have insisted that they will have nothing to do with this deal. Once mm -hmm. in office, they may have to moderate uh, their positions, but at least their stated views causes con concern, doesn't it? Does it not? Yes. Uh, I mean, I think it's interesting that Iran has proceeded with this deal despite outspoken claims on the part of the opposition party in the United States that they will overturn the deal at first opportunity if they win the election uh, for the presidency next year. You know, there's been a debate among the Republicans about whether they should do it instantly or whether they should hold a cabinet meeting first. But in, in either case, the goal is a very rapid overturning of this of this deal. I see see no indication among any of the many Republican candidates that, that there's a different view uh, among them. Uh, so the only real question is whether when the weight of actual responsibility is is upon them, uh, if elected president, that they will come to see things a little differently, uh, particularly if the deal has been working well between now and then. And I think a new president who was interested in junking the deal uh, would have to at least consider the possibility that it would be impossible to restore the coalition that put pressure on Iran in the first place. Uh, the Europeans are supportive of the deal. European business is enthusiastic about going into Iran. The Chinese and the Russians never shared our, our view of Iran in the first place, went along very reluctantly with some of the measures that were put in place and actually were 
substantially responsible for the fact that the sanctions were not more biting to begin with because they were unprepared to go along with more severe uh, sanctions. Uh, But if the Iranians have been complying with the deal and fulfilling their obligations in ways that provide comfort and reassurance to much of the world, and it's the United States that wrecks the situation, this will really impair, in my opinion, our ability to persuade others to join us in a new campaign to pressure Iran. Uh, And in the absence of international sanctions, we're unlikely to gain leverage beyond what we had during the past negotiation. You know, the Republican position is, well, we're, we're in favor of a better deal. Well, it's hard to argue against a better deal. The question is, how do you get it? And I think the reality is we're in a situation where the real choice is the existing deal or no deal. And in that trade-off, no deal is an outcome that uh, restores the status quo ante. So then you're talking about Iran with 20,000 centrifuges and counting. You're talking about Iran with 11,000 kilograms of enriched material and growing, right? And why is that preferable to a situation in which Iran is limited to almost no enriched material and cut down to 5,000 centrifuges? You know, uh, I don't see how a president makes that case. My guess is that Israel accepted a new president who was inclined to uh, reject the deal would find himself severely pressured by our international friends and partners to think again. And chances are that even our allies uh, would be uh, reluctant to go along with wrecking this deal, uh, especially given the sheer amount of effort and uh, uh, energy that has been uh, expended in getting us to this point. Yes, I think they'd be among the, likely be among the most uh, effective to pressure a new president that we would be wrecking a desirable situation. Assuming that all the stars are in alignment and that um, even if uh, we get a Republican uh, president, that as you say, that with the weight of responsibility on his or her shoulders, that they might have to take a more considered view uh, of this deal and not simply try to implement uh, what was overheated campaign rhetoric. What do you see as sort of the positive spillover effects of this agreement? Well, uh, I think what the agreement does is creates an opportunity to explore whether it's possible to reconfigure U.S.-Iranian relations. It's not going to be a relationship of full harmony. Uh, It's not going to be a relationship of congenial alignment. But I think we can move to a more mixed relationship. We've been very harsh and very negative toward Iran since the revolution in 1979. There have been very, very few points of uh, interaction or uh, collaboration, much less cooperation. Uh, But there are a number of areas where our interests are compatible, if not identical. Iran is opposed to the Taliban in Afghanistan. And in fact, If you know anything about Iranian security policy, the Taliban was one of their more acute security problems. Well, in that, they are as one with the United States. With respect to Iraq, uh, Iran wants a single coherent state. They want unified rule, which means, of course, Shiite rule in in 
Iran because majority rule <laughs> will mean Shiite rule, which is a perfectly happy outcome for Iran. Iran is uh, acting as vigorously as anybody against the Islamic State. Uh, in that, their interests are, are compatible with ours. Iran has very hostile relations with al-Qaeda, uh, which uh, has declared war on, on the Islamic Republic. Uh, in that, their interests are compatible uh, with ours. With respect to global fossil fuel uh, markets, the Iranians believe that there's a compatibility between uh, American and Iranian interests. There's huge money to be made by Western firms going in and helping the Iranians uh, to develop the infrastructure for their national, natural gas uh, reserves. Uh, they believe that this would be good for the world, good for Europe, good for large American firms. So there are a number of areas in which we might have been working with Iran where episodically we did manage to collaborate. For example, in 2001, fleetingly after 9-11, we collaborated with Iran uh, to reconstruct the post-Taliban Afghanistan state. But by and large, we've been in a position of near-total rejectionism and hostility. And I think going forward with this nuclear question out of the way, assuming that it stays out of the way, yes. uh, we might be able to arrive at what I call a mixed relationship, which means in those areas where our interests are divergent, we will play our hand and they will play their hand. Uh, and there's no reason to close our eyes to the fact that we're never going to see Hezbollah uh, in the same way they see Hezbollah as a bunch of freedom fighters, we see them as a bunch of terrorists. There's very few, very little middle ground to be had there. We're not going to see Hamas in the same way that uh, Iran does. So we have points of uh, dissensus here where their interests and ours are different, their perceptions and our perceptions are different, and in those circumstances we have to play our hand and defend our interests. But in things like in situations like Afghanistan, Iraq, Islamic State, and so on, Al Qaeda, uh, I think there's room for collaboration with Iran to pursue jointly our compatible interests. And uh, uh, to my opinion, for example, in 2003, when we went into Iraq, there was an no one anywhere in the world that would be more happy to see the backside of Saddam Hussein than the government of Iran. He was public enemy number one. Right? People don't understand, uh, I think, in our country that for Iran, the Iran-Iraq war was World War I and World War II rolled into one. Right? Every time I've gone to Iran, my trip has coincided with some military anniversary, the anniversary of some great battle that is like D-Day to them and that I've never heard of, right? So this was huge in their thinking. And we're not talking about some remote threat. We're talking about right across the border, a regime that had attacked Iran, uh, inflicted on it this horrible nearly decade-long war that laid waste to the western frontiers of Iran, that killed hundreds of thousands of people, that involved the use of gas, right? So this was a tremendous neuralgia for Iran. If we'd gone to the Iranians and said, we're going to take this guy out, this is in our interest, this is in your interest, just don't cause us problems, stand aside and let us do your dirty work for us, the Iranians would have been very happy. What we did instead, and which I regard as a violation of sort of strategy 101, is we went to the Iranians and said, we're taking this guy out and then we're going to use Iraq as a power projection platform to come after you. 
And so we gave the Iranians every incentive to cause us problems in, in Iraq. And they, of course, did so. Now, the Iranians always said during that period, they said, we may occasionally throw some wood on the fire, they said, but you're the ones who built the fire uh, in Iraq. So they were very careful not to take too much credit for the mess we were in uh, in Iraq. But I think that shows that there, there's been for some time a potential to cooperate with Iran on issues where our interests were convergent. And we've, we've been reluctant to ever do that. And now what we have is a, is a moment in time where we've reached an agreement where diplomacy worked, where our high-level diplomats are, have had a chance to interact with one another. I think Zarif and Kerry, the two foreign ministers, have achieved a nice personal uh, relationship. Uh, Zarif is a very impressive human being and, and quite personable uh, as well. And so there's room for maneuver. Now, let me add in the caveats, which is, on both sides, uh, there are uh, severe critics of any kind of move in this direction. Uh, the nuclear deal was very carefully defined to be a narrow nuclear deal, right? So there's no arrangement, no agreement, no special uh, considerations established with respect to Iran's behavior in any other respect uh, because we were so preoccupied with locking down and constraining this nuclear program. Some critics now, and, if, and in fact many of the Israeli critics, basically say, well, one of the flaws of this nuclear deal is that it doesn't do anything about Iran and the Gulf, Iran vis-a-vis -vis Israel, Iran vis-a-vis -vis Hezbollah, Iran vis-a-vis -vis international terrorism. What, what about all this other bad stuff that Iran does? Well, this was by design because the fear was that if we tried to tackle the whole array of issues on which we in Iran disagree fundamentally, that this would prevent us from ever getting to yes with respect to the nuclear deal, which the U.S. government, but also the Israeli government, had defined as absolutely central and essential. Obviously, uh, there's a whole panoply of issues that we will continue to disagree with uh, Iran on. Uh, the one last issue um, that I wanted to uh, wanted you to address is um, we've primarily focused on the concerns that the United States and its allies, and particularly Israel, has uh, in terms of Iran's behavior uh, in the uh, Middle East and uh, in its environs. But uh, there are also Iranian critics of the deal. Uh, yes. There are constituencies within Iran that are not entirely congenial uh, mm -hmm. towards the deal. And might you outline a bit of that? Yes. Well, I think I said earlier that there are critics on, on both sides who would object to exploiting this opportunity. And you see a little bit of backlash in both countries. You see uh, the leaderships in both countries saying, well, we're going to stick to, you know, we're going to defend our interests. This doesn't mean we're going to stand down and so on. But the critics have been vociferous on both, on both sides. In Iran, to me, one of the striking things about having the, the opportunity to interact across a long sweep of time with, with an array of Iranian colleagues, officials and, and uh, specialists, uh, is that there is very wide interest among them in finding some sort of detente with the United States. So I think the loudest voices, the noisiest souls, the most vituperative rhetoric is very gripping, but it's not at all representative. And uh, in my experience, I would say 
everything from Khatami and the reformers to Rafsanjani and the traditional conservatives. So a very wide portion of the Iranian political elite is interested in some sort of rapprochement with the United States for very self-interested reasons. They have calculations of their own strategic imperatives, and they believe that they cannot achieve their broad international objectives when they're at complete loggerheads with the United States. So they're trying to repair that relationship. And in fact, in their eyes, they have their own narrative, of course, and, and in their eyes, they've been reaching out to the United States since the late 1990s with one offer, gesture, overture after the next, always to be rebuffed by us, often ridiculed and so on, but, but never much uptake on Washington's side. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why the Supreme Leader keeps saying the Americans have no interest in interacting genuinely and constructively with us. They're only interested in destroying the Islamic Republic. That's the Supreme Leader's line. But there is some portion of the uh, Iranian body politic that remains in the sort of harshly anti-American mode. This is the sort of death to America crowd. And I don't think it's possible to put any precise number on it, but I would guess it's in the 15% range, something like that. The harsh end of their spectrum, which corresponds in some ways to the harsh end of our spectrum. Every country has its spectrum. And among others, the the Revolutionary Guard, the IRGC, has profited enormously from the confrontation between the United States and Iran and has actually a huge vested interest in the status quo because one of the main effects of the sanctions has been to drive much activity, much economic activity in Iran into the black market. And the black market turns out to be dominated by the IRGC. And they have made a fortune. They've become a, a major player in the economy of Iran. And so they stand to lose dramatically by an opening up of the Iranian economy to normal economic intercourse. Uh, so there is a severe opposition from certain self-interested quarters to a deal that will sort of wreck their gravy train. In addition, there's an ideological component, right? Those who are revolutionary purists who go back to the early days uh, and still are true believers, uh, well, the United States was, in the famous phrase, the great Satan, in the sense that we are the ones who had intervened in Iran's domestic affairs to prevent the existence of an Islamic regime, to prevent the existence of a democratic regime. What we did was propped up our boy, the Shah, and uh, he turned out to be a ferociously repressive toward his own people, especially toward the end of his rule. Uh, and this produced great hatred of him, but by reflection, great hatred of us. And so some of those people uh, still exist, and they're not enthusiastic about this deal. I think, though, that as far as I can tell, the public in Iran is very enthusiastic. There's actually, believe it or not, some public opinion polling uh, that's done in Iran, and it shows very considerable uh, support for the nuclear deal, although worrisomely uh, with very exaggerated hopes about how much change, how quickly will happen as a result of the deal. Rouhani and Zarif uh, have, they won the, the last election and uh, they, they're savvy players. Uh, Rouhani is nothing if not an establishment figure. Before Ahmadinejad, he'd been national security advisor for 
well more than a decade. Uh, so he's not a fringe player by any stretch of the imagination. But I think the most important and telling point is that the uh, Supreme Leader has endorsed this deal. He's praised the negotiators. He has uh, verbally given his assent. He's written a letter of formal approval of this deal. And uh, I think if the, the rejectionists in Iran don't have the Supreme Leader with them, they have really an uphill struggle to try and overcome uh, this, this deal. And meanwhile, Iran's objective has been to implement the first stages of the deal by the end of 2015. So much will be done that won't easily be undone. Well, this might be as good a moment uh, as any to conclude uh, this program. I'm Shumit Ganguly, the director of the Center on American and Global Security here at Indiana University, and I've been in a conversation with Professor Stephen Miller of Harvard University, uh, where he directs the International Security Program at the John F. Kennedy School of Government and is also the editor-in-chief of International Security, the, the journal. And uh, we have been talking today about uh, the merits uh, of the Iran nuclear agreement. And uh, we are delighted that we were able to host Professor Miller today. And we look forward to continuing this conversation on another occasion. Thank you very much once again. Thank you. It's been my pleasure to be here. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.